So we're in part two of our series together. It's a study on the book of James. And the name of the study, the name of this is this series will make you uncomfortable. And that's, and that's okay. Because we open up the book of James, we open up James not to feel better. We open up James to get better. We open up James to grow deeper. That's the point. We're taking a look at James chapter by chapter and installment by installment on the weekends here uh, to learn these uncomfortable truths that help us get better, that help us grow deeper. And so last week in our introduction of the series in James 1, we heard our first uncomfortable truth that God actually uses these tests. God actually uses these trials not to, to tear us down, but to promote us, to build us up. Remember, he's a good teacher. And the question is, what kind of students will each one of us be? Uh, today, uh, uncomfortable truth number two, I just want you to know it right off the bat from James chapter two. It, it's simply this, that not all faith is created equal. That, that there's some good faith and there's some not so good faith. There's, there's, like, there's this kind of faith that's capable of changing and transforming me. That, that there's a kind of faith that's capable of changing and transforming the world around me through me. There's a kind of good faith that can actually pull me, bring me up to the throne room of God. God in heaven where I can hear those words of our Savior Jesus tell me, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's a kind of faith that's not so good. There's a useless kind of good for nothing faith that does not have the capacity to change me or transform me. It does not have to capacity to change you or change the world around you. It doesn't bring you into the throne room of God. It leaves you at the gateway outside of heaven where you hear those words, get away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. You knew things about me, but, but, but we, never, we never knew each other, Jesus says. We never knew each other because you couldn't you couldn't possibly accept that you were fully and finally forgiven. You, you held on to your own guilt and, and, and shame. You held on to it, and you never forgave yourself. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, is that since you didn't accept my forgiveness and you didn't, you didn't forgive yourself, you didn't pass along that forgiveness to anybody else around. You, you kept that. And you kept hanging on to that. You brought that in every interaction that you had, every exchange that you had, it, it, it weighed you down. You couldn't accept that you were fully and finally forgiven. You couldn't accept that you were deeply loved. You couldn't like wrap your mind around the fact, Jesus says, that I actually, I like you. I enjoy you. And not just like the, the future perfected, transformed final version of you in heaven someday, but like the here and now. The messy and the goofy version of you, I like you. And I actually, I prefer your company. I prefer my presence with you than without you. I like you and I want to spend time with you. And, and, and every time you sat down and decided to spend time with me, it was out of a sense of obligation. Not relationship, not love. It's not a good faith. It's not a faith worth hanging on to. 
Not all faiths are created equal. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to ask, what's the difference? What's the difference between the bad faith that's not worth hanging on to and what's the good faith that we ought to keep? And James helps us. James answers that question in James chapter 2. Let's go there right now. If you're watching along uh, in our uh, church online on our website, there's like a neat kind of built-in Bible study tool there with you. If you uh, have a phone or other Bible, I encourage you to follow along James 2. We're starting off in verse 14 where it says, what good, what good is it, James says? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, that faith is it's dead. We're talking today about the difference between the bad kind of faith, the good kind of faith, and the difference here is, is action. The difference here is works. The difference here is, is doing something. As soon as I kind of get into like this is faith and works, faith, action, faith, doing something, there's, there's part of us, there's a, lot, a large part of us, and, and this is kind of where I fall into, I go immediately to like this legalism sense, like this Christianized legalist approach. And that's a, that's a mistake of the Christian faith. Historically, we've called that a, a heresy, this Christian, this legalism thing. But what legalism does and why it's so appealing is it's like, just give me the list. Oh, you, uh, J- James, okay, good faith has some action or has something, some kind of works attached to it. Done. Give me the list. I'll do it. Whatever it is. You want me to wake up at, at 5 a.m., James? I'm in. I'll do it. Cross it off the list. You want me to do one of those read the Bible in a year programs? I'll do it. I'll do, like every, I'll do it every year for the rest of my life. What kind of what read the Bible? You want me to do like, like one chapter out of five different sections of the Bible all year long? Done. You want me to do like this chronological thing and skip around? You want me to do like cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, just plow right through it? I'll do it. Just give me the list. I'll check off the list and I'll be done. It's, it sounds so appealing, but that's not, that's not the kind of works that he's talking about. Because every time we might introduce the concept or the notion of a list, here's what it does. It invalidates the work of Christ on the cross. It makes Jesus actually out to be a liar when, when he said those three words, hanging on the cross, suffering under the weight of all the sins in all humanity, everyone who would put their faith and hope and trust in him. It makes him a liar in those three words when he says, it is finished. Because it's not finished, not if we have a list. If we have a list, what's true then is that Jesus hanging on the cross, it is finished. This sacrifice, plus 2,000 years later, there's a guy named Dirk, and he's got a list that involves getting up early and reading the Bible in the morning. Those two things together, that's salvation. It's like, no. There can't, there can't, be, there can't be a list. And Paul knows that. And Paul and Basically, everything that Paul wrote in the New Testament, the book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he spells it out very clearly. There's no list. Faith is, uh, salvation is faith alone. He says in Ephesians, grace by faith alone. That's it. There is no list. And James is like, yeah, but like, show me what you've done lately. Show me, show me your actions. How do, you, how do you balance these things? How do you keep them in tension? Are they different things? Are they two sides of the same coin, kind of the same thing? I thought this was helpful. Guy um, ends up in the emergency room. 
uh, downtown. It's a big it's an open lobby area. And they do like the shower curtain, like, um, like paper uh, room divider. So it's not like everybody has their own room. They have their own false sense of privacy, right? Because even though you can't see into the one room, like you can hear everything that's happening on the other side of the paper curtain next to you. So guys, um, guys sitting in the emergency room, he's waiting to be seen by some uh, hospital staff, the doctor's making, making the rounds. Doctor goes in into the, the room next door and he's talking to the guy, says some doctor speak, makes no sense to any of us, that's fine though. Uh, prescription, here's what I'm asking you to do. Doctor says, stay off it rest. I'm talking four to six weeks with no load bear, weight bearing whatsoever. Couch, bed, do you have somebody that's going to take care of you? Yes, good. Stay off from it. Rest is what you need. Doctor closes that curtain, opens up your curtain, comes in, takes a look at your chart, and she says, oh, it's, it's time for you to get moving. Activity. I'm serious about this. 20 to 30 minutes a day, three to four times a week, you need to get out, you need to start moving. And you're like, what kind of doctor is this? I hope, hope you paid your malpractice insurance because this person, this doc is a quack. How can you go ahead and prescribe that person rest and then write a second later prescribe me activity? It's probably helpful to realize that he had a broken leg and you've got heart disease from all the curly fries and jamoka shakes and you need to get moving clear some of that stuff up a little bit right it's 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 not inconsistent for god to say it's faith alone because faith is never alone we, we look at this and we start to see this example that he gives us and he's like you got brother or sister you got somebody who's without clothes and daily food that's bad because back then, it wasn't like designer clothes and without like tasty food. It's like, no, no, no. he doesn't have, this brother, he doesn't have uh, a discount bin at the thrift store to find a jacket and it's seven degrees outside, kind of bad. And he doesn't have any food to eat and any food to share with his family or loved ones or anybody else. I mean, this situation is bad. What good is it, James says, if somebody goes, hey, you know what, be, be warm and be well fed. That's what I want from you. You can have a blessed day. What good is that? If it's not backed up with anything. I'd have a hard time believing that that person actually wanted the brother in need to, to be clothed or well fed. Wouldn't you? It's a true story. Uh, this is years ago, um, in, the, in the graduate, uh, graduate student phase uh, of my wife and I's marriage, um, we were at some advisor's house, and they were very successful and very noted, and, uh, and they were established, you know, years long, tail end of the career, that sort of thing. Done very well. And I don't know how, you know, we're struggling graduates, and we don't, we don't have a lot at all. And I don't know how it came up, but we're talking about grocery shopping and, like, meal prep, you know, and planning, and, like, oh, nobody likes the worst part about adulting is trying to figure out what you're going to have for dinner every night, you know, that kind of thing. And they were talking, like, well, what kind of, what kind of meals do you usually do? It's like, we're graduate students, you know, like, we're, like, are you kidding me? I mean, we've got rice, and we've got beans, and sometimes we do rice and beans. <laughs> that's, that's it. And the guy, I'm not going to forget it, he looks at me, and he goes, you know what? Do yourself a favor and get yourself a rib roast. And I'm like, is he? He's like serious right now. He's like, oh, man, it's so good. 
It's so good. You'll love it. Thank me later. I mean, it's so easy to prepare a crock pot, you know, so many minutes, and Google a recipe. It's so good. I'm like, bro, the, uh, the thing that's preventing me from picking up a rib roast is not, like, the barrier to entry is, is not having thought of bringing home a rib roast. It's the $100 for a meal for the two of us. Like, that's the barrier to entry. What good, what good is it to say to somebody, be clothed and well-fed, even if you mean it. See, God's design of how people are cared for it involves everybody, which is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's such an incredible picture of God. That, that he actually, he wants the person in need uh, to be blessed, to be protected, to be well-fed, to be cared for, to be visited. He wants them. He wants them to be taken care of. And sometimes God intervenes, God acts supernaturally. He will provide those things for that person. But I just, I love this about God, that he doesn't just give to them. He involves everybody. So like those of us uh, who have enough, those of us who have even more than enough, like God involves us. Because Jesus said, remember, it's better to give than to receive. And so if that's true, and presumably God believes that it's true, he involves us by saying, I'm going to actually give this person more than enough. More than enough blessings, more than enough clothes, more than enough to eat, more than enough medical necessities. I'm going to give him more than enough so that, that's important, so that they can be blessed in taking care of this other person. And when this other person has more than enough, then they can be blessed by, by paying it forward on after that. This is like cool picture of how God is on the move involving everybody with the restoration of everybody else. It's such a cool picture, but you can imagine what happens when somebody just says, fine, this is good, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to hold on to this, but you be well fed, would you? You know what you should do? You should, you should go, you should put on a nice suit on Valentine's and, and take somebody that you love. It doesn't matter. It could be your mom. Take somebody that you love out to a fancy dinner. Go to a steakhouse. Wouldn't that be great? Have, have a great day. What what, what good is it? What good is something like that? Jesus said in Matthew 25, this is good faith and this is bad faith. I'm going to call these animals that honestly, to a non-farming kind of person, sheep and goats, they look all the same to me. But I'm going to, I'm going to call all these four. I'm going to separate them to the sheep and the goats. And the distinction, the deciding factor is going to be, I'm going to look at them and say, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was sick, somebody gave me something to eat, something to drink, and cared for me. And somebody didn't. That's the, that's the deciding factor. What good is it? Church, action is the measuring cup of faith. Come on, you, got, you know this. I know, I know this. Action is the measuring cup of faith. It's Valentine's Day for crying out loud, right? And we're going we're gonna to do something for the people in our lives that we love. It could be big and extravagant. It could be small because you love your person 364 other days out of the year. You can use that in case you forgot. Also, if you're watching this on Monday or Tuesday and you're like, oh, shoot, it was Valentine's Day on Sunday. You sh should have joined us live. <laughs> Action is the measuring cup of faith. We know that. It's not the flowers, the chocolate, the coffee, the whatever, but it's like what that sort of stuff points to. Action is measuring cup of faith. Do something. 
we do something. And it's like scooping up that faith, scooping up that love, and, and measuring out a spoonful at a time. Action is the measuring cup of faith. We know this, and honestly, that might be part of the problem. Listen to what James says, continuing on in verse 18. He says, but someone, someone, and I love this, I just imagine James is like got somebody. He knows like a lot of the people, and he just imagines like, oh, I, I know. I'm going to say someone, but I'm really thinking Ted. Like <laughs> someone says, Ted says, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by deeds. Essentially, he's saying, oh, Ted, I see what you're thinking. I get where you're going. You think, Ted, that you can separate out actions from faith. You think deeds and faith are somehow, somehow different. <laughs> See, Ted, that's, that's where we have to disagree. I think you know, they're one and the same. I think that action is the measuring cup of faith. I think they're two sides of the same coin. You can't actually separate these things out. And this whole argument, it kind of comes down, his argument kind of comes down to this right now. His, his thought, like what he's trying to teach us, is going, Ted, Ted, my man, you, uh, you believe that this chair can hold you? And Ted like, looks at the chair and goes, hey, man, I saw you like, pull it up on stage during the bumper video, and you're still a little out of breath. It looks heavy. Yes, I think that the chair, I think that it can hold you. I think that it could hold me. You, th- you think so, huh? Yeah, Ted, um, tell me more about this chair. And Ted's going, well, I happen to know the manufacturer. I happen to know about that chair, that it's a, it's a steel chair. It's rated for 800 pounds. I am less than that. I believe that it could hold me. And James goes, why don't you go, go ahead and sit down in the chair? And Ted's like, nah, I'm good. No, no, Ted, I mean, you know that this thing can hold you, right? You believe that it can hold you. I have faith that the chair can hold me. And James is going, then just sit down. I'd prefer to stand, James. <laughs> We're going to be talking here for a little while. I've got five more chapters to get through. Ted, go ahead, please, have a seat in the chair. And Ted's like, no, thanks. I'm good. I'm not going to do it. Not, mm it isn't for me. See, what Ted, what Ted has done is he's, He's done what clever people tend to do. He, first of all, he didn't realize that salvation is by faith alone, but faith is never alone. He's a clever person, and he does what clever people tend to do. They intellectualize it. He has intellectualized it. There's nothing wrong with being smart. There's nothing wrong wrong, with thinking. But the problem is that's, that's all it is. It's all alone. And salvation is faith alone, but it's never just alone. Now listen, I, I, want you to, I want you to know this. Intellectual assent to right doctrine, to correct beliefs, will not save you. Talking about the chair, knowing things, believing things even about the chair, knowing and believing that Jesus of Nazareth was an actual historical figure, and believing wholeheartedly that he was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, was both fully God and fully human, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who ended up giving up that life on a cross on Friday, 
was buried, rose from the dead on Sunday morning and had breakfast with his close friends on the beach after that and ascending on into heaven where he is currently sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. is not enough to save you. I can say that. I can say that because James did. In James, 19, James 2, verse 19. Oh, you believe these things. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This picture that's painted of, of Ted. <laughs> it's a guy who is... Faith is a set of intellectual beliefs that has not had the capacity to change him or transform his love. He does not bring home the love of God and translate that into the love of everybody else around him. The picture that we get of Ted is this, is this guy whose heart is old and crusty and cut off from the love of his neighbor. That's all it is. I love this picture that somebody gave a quote they said the average, I think the average Christian in North America today is about 3,000 verses overweight. The, mis- the mistake that we made, and I think this is like the, the critical mistake, is that we have assumed that Christian knowledge will produce Christian maturity. Like it, it doesn't. You can know so much about God. The demons, they know so much about God. We can know so much. But Jesus, Jesus didn't look for people who were rich in knowledge. We know that. Paul said knowledge builds up, but lo- uh, puffs up, but love builds up. Jesus, when he's looking for his followers, he passed by countless peoples, people who had better, better intellectual knowledge and capacity before finding the disciples. It almost looks as if Jesus pursued the exact opposite kind of people is that the people who dropped out of the rabbi school that every kid was enrolled into until they just couldn't hack it anymore. And then they went into the family business. And Jesus founds everybody who couldn't hack it and finds them and says, Peter, let's go fishing. James, you're a carpenter's son. I know you extra well because you're my brother. Follow me. That's who Jesus was for. Christian, Christian knowledge does not necessarily produce Christian maturity. That's why James, sorry, that's why Paul says in Galatians, and I love that these two things hang together, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Don't be, don't be deceived. That person that, Ted, don't, don't be deceived. He's not close to God. He's just smart. He's fooling himself first. And then even double because he thinks he's also fooling God. Facts aren't enough. Knowledge isn't enough. Intellectual ascension, even to the right things, aren't enough. Even the demons believe that. And they probably have better theology than each one of us because they've had longer to study God closer up. But they shudder. They don't have on the other side 
heaven waiting for them, in the throne room of God waiting for them for all eternity. The difference is not knowing enough. That's not good faith. That's useless faith. That's not enough. James clarifies this with, with a couple of awesome images in verse 20. Or we, uh, we see James say, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Is that two, pick, two people now? You can circle them, write it down if you want to. Verse 21, was not our father Abraham, that's the first one, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Spoiler alert, he offered, but God said no, he doesn't want that. Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. 23, and the scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is, right, is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Faith alone, but faith is not, faith is never alone. Verse 25, in the same way as the second person, wasn't that even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? We've got two people. One of them is well-known. One of them, Abraham, would have been well-known to, to James. That's an easy get for him. That's low-hanging fruit. We said last week, and we stand by it, that James is probably one of the most Jewish of Jesus' early followers. That James, growing up steeped in the Jewish traditions and, and customs, James is the person who stayed in Jerusalem, the Jewish center of life and commerce and faith. The temple was there. James embedded himself into the life of the temple. In fact, as we heard last week, that was instrumental into his death even. James was super Jewish. And so it's not a surprise that he goes to Father Abraham. And his many sons. You know that song, right? I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. It's no surprise that he goes to Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham's the father of a great nation. That your children, your descendants will be as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And when Abraham gets to that place, a very, very old age, he doesn't have descendants that number the stars in the sky. He's got one. And God is now saying, put him on the altar. And Abraham takes that son up on the altar, and he's ready to do it before God says, no, you have not withheld your son from me. And later on, God is going to say, and I will not withhold my son from you. You've shown me your faith by what you've done, because faith alone is never just faith alone. Action is the measuring cup of faith. Abraham, what you've shown me you believe. You believe. It's not surprising that he goes to Father Abraham and his many sons. It is surprising he quotes also Rahab. That was not anticipated. Rahab was not a Jewish person, she was Canaanite. Rahab was outside in every possible way. Uh, she was a woman in a time when women were very, very looked down upon. She was an outsider to the Jewish people, the Israelites in her day. She was from Canaan, from Jericho. She's listed as part of the, the enemy. On top of all of that, she's called here and elsewhere as a prostitute. That's probably why there's fewer children's songs about her than Abraham. Bonus points if you can make one up. 
But James goes to her too and says, you know what, even Rahab, that's a surprising get, but Rahab gets included in Matthew chapter 1, gets included in the lineage, the family tree of Jesus. The, the two things that Abraham and Rahab had in common were the most important thing ever, is that for them, faith alone wasn't ever just faith alone. They measured up, they scooped up their affection and their love for God, one measuring up, one spoonful at a time, and called it action. What Abraham did and what a- Rahab also did, is sit down in the chair, Ted. That's what I'm asking you to do. Something. Show me anything. There isn't a list, but come on. If there's nothing else to it, is there anything to it? A famous mid-1800s preacher in England put it so well. In uh, giving a message one time, he talked about um, orchards and trees and plants. And he reconciled these things. He said that a a tree has been planted out into the ground. And now the source of life to that tree is at the root, whether it applies or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if the tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there's no bud. And when the summer comes, And there's no leafing and no fruit bearing. But the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit. He would say that it's dead. And you're right. It is dead. It's not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is a proof that it's dead. So too it is with the professor of the Christian faith. If they have life, that life must give fruit. If not, fruit works. If it has, if his faith has a root, but if there will be no works, then it would be correct to depend upon the inference that he or she is spiritually dead. just want to leave you with a picture and encouragement. I have have taught my kids a, a game. I consider three lessons in my parenting to be the all time greatest victories. First of all, number one, I've taught my kids that the back end of a slice of pizza is not called the crust, it is called the breadstick. You're welcome. I taught my kids that for the jelly to appear in a donut, dad has to take the first bite. And I taught my kids a game that when we are playing at home and we make a mess of the place, mom's at a meeting, running errands, something. And we just make an absolute wreck of the place. I mean, you would believe from just looking at it that we were all raised in a barn. And with the addition of the bunny that I mentioned last week, sometimes it kind of smells like it. I taught them a game. 
app on my phone tells me that mom is 10 minutes out. And so the game is that we do a cleaning frenzy to pick up as much stuff as we possibly can. I mean, it is like a tornado. We're shoving stuff in bins, moving it to the closet, putting stuff in rooms, under covers, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just for the, just for the moment. For the moment that she walks through the door. Now, do we, do we do all of this? Because if she saw the mess that we were playing games and there was Monopoly money everywhere because we we're still kind of trying to figure out how to play, is she going to get upset? And we, do we do it all to, to avoid making her upset at us and sending us to, to our rooms? No. Do we, do we do all of this because somehow we think that as a result of this 10 minutes of, of frenzied labor that she's going to somehow love us? more? I assure you that if love was on the line, we would be doing a far better job with all of this. Now, there's nothing we could do with our actions and with our work that would make her love us any more or any less. There's nothing we could do with our actions that could make God love us any more or any less. It's just for that moment. As she walks in the door, sees a clean house and smiles. This is my encouragement to you, church. This week, spend the time that you have between right now and when your Lord again comes through that door, feeding and clothing and taking care of and visiting every last one. Not out of obligation, not because somehow it'll make God love you more, but because it'll put a smile on his faith. And the fruit of your action will put a smile on yours. Let me pray for you. Our gracious God in heaven, in these holy moments, we pray for opportunities. Because it's the opportunity to care for somebody else, the opportunity to express love to somebody else, it's such a gift. Even if it costs something, God, it's a gift. It's a gift from you. God, this week when we're tempted to intellectualize our faith or to suppress the action of our faith, give us that picture that action is the measuring cup of faith. That faith alone is never faith all alone. Thank you for James and thank you for his uncomfortable wisdom. As this takes root in our hearts, in our lives, in our communities. God, nothing short of revival is possible. And that starts right here. That starts in these next few moments. Jesus, with all of our hearts, amen.